This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. My name's Marsha. I live in the UK, as you can tell by my accent, <laughs> and um, I've had sickle cell for the longest time I can remember. Um, my parents found out when I was about six years old. My mum knew she had the trait, um, but my dad didn't know that he carried the trait. And obviously my older sister was born um, and she was just had a trait so it was my mum was like okay fine she had got that from me but when I came about I was born with another sort of um, illness on top of sickle cell which is called B6 deficiency so it kind of masked the sickle cell so over the many years growing up I was like becoming sick they couldn't quite work out um, and then it was uh, when my younger sister was born, they said, you know, let's retest her for sickle cell. And that's when they found out that um, I had uh, the full-blown disease. I kind of understood I had um, an illness much later on, I would say, when I was about nine, eight or nine. Yes, I went to hospital appointments prior to that, but it just didn't really sunk in. I kind of let my parents deal with it all like okay well you manage my health I manage being a child and playing with my friends and stuff like that uh, I didn't really understand it too I think as I went later on in my teenager years when I went started going to secondary school that's when I started taking more control over my illness and saying okay well you know I have to eat right I have to dress right I have to make sure I get enough rest and you know not overstress myself because I know if I don't these things can trigger off a crisis and I can um, be left out of school for like weeks on end and it was only when I joined sort of like a be positive choir that I actually um, came out and a lot of my school friends it was like do you know what I did not know you had sickle cell I didn't know how to explain it to them in, in a way and I didn't know how they would receive me. I always think like, you know, if I said it, I would lose friends, which I remember having a friend who said they didn't want to be my friend because they thought they could catch sickle cell if they held my hand. And I was like, it doesn't work that way. Unless you're born with the disease, it does not work that way. So it was very, um, I, sh I shielded myself um, just so I wouldn't have to face that negativity and that hurt 
later on in my adult years, I was like, no, you know what? If you don't like me the way I am, then that's fine. Somebody else will. There's many people in this world that will. And I grew that confidence and was able to mentor or talk to other teenager girls and boys who were in my situation to say, you know, don't let supercell stop you from doing what you want to do. When I do get in a crisis and I'm in pain, the best way to describe it, it has to be like when you get a really bad cold and you have aches and pains and all of your body hurts on a 10 times worse scale than aches and pains when you've got a cold and you just want it to stop. And I've had, it's brought me to tears before many a times and it's brought me to the parts where I'm like, do you know what, I don't want to be here on this earth because I don't want to experience this pain. Why do I have to go for it? You know, why was I the unlucky one? Um, and I did kind of go through the phase of blaming my parents, so to speak, saying, you know, you should have checked each other before you had me. Why didn't you do this? Um, and, you know, you, your mind starts thinking loads of things of, you know, if I, if I wasn't here, would I be in a better place? Or if I was born before my sister, would I be in a better place? And you just think many things. Um, every day you wake up, you don't know if it's going to be a good day, if it's going to be a bad day. And I think that affects your social life as well because you're all forever cancelling on your friends and it's the same with relationships. I've like broken up with a lot of partners because they don't understand the extent of sickle cell. Going into hospital, that's our last resort on our mind. We tend to not quite go into hospital, but we like we want to try and treat it the best we can at home. Sometimes we don't like going to hospitals because of the stigma that we get. We get looked upon as, oh, we're drug addicts or, you know, we're not really in pain. We're just here because we need a fix. And it's like, I, I wouldn't, don't want to be in hospital. This is the last place I want to be. Luckily enough, my family are amazing, bless their hearts. Um, I have snapped at them many a times. Um, but it's not a case that I mean to, it's just a case of I all I can feel is this pain and I don't want to feel the pain anymore. Um, I have apologised to them afterwards, but now they kind of know my routine. You know, when I say I'm in a crisis, they don't answer silly questions. They're just like, right, pain meds, uh, heat pad or hot, hot bath, or if it's that bad, do you need to go to the hospital? And obviously I've got a son who is fantastic. He, I call him a little Dr. Quinn. The minute, you know, I say, mummy's not feeling very well, he's on it with the pain meds, the hot cups of tea, the hot water bottle, everything you can think of to make, to cheer me up. He'll put my favourite movie on and cuddles um, and just sit there with me. So he is literally amazing. But because it's just me and him that live together, I feel like that, Sometimes he feels his childhood got robbed and sometimes he feels that he can't be a child because he has to look after mummy and also be himself, which is I knew was quite hard. And I think that was the same thing when I knew when I was going to have children, you know, what impact would my health have on him? And I, for me, when I 
fell pregnant and after my pregnancy, that's when my sickle cell got worse. I had a minor stroke. More things were happening to my body where I felt like it was deteriorating. Um, and I felt that that was not made aware to me when I was thinking about starting a family. So I'm now going over that hurdle of experiencing things where I feel that maybe I could have been made more aware of and given that option of um, what to do. But nevertheless, he's still a blessing um, and I love him to pieces. And I think now that where I joined Be Positive Choir, it's a journey that you don't want to end. Singing for um, Britain's Got Talent, singing for the Queen, Meghan, Prince Harry, Prince William, everyone, it was amazing. It was like I was living a dream. I had to keep saying, pinch me, somebody pinch me. Is that Meghan over there? No. Um, so it was actually amazing. And the way since we've come on that platform, it's gone viral. I think it's got more awareness. Everybody's starting to get involved and starting to um, be more clued up and taking notice of what sickle cell is and you know how they can go around helping to spread the awareness um, and I feel that it's a way that brings the community together as well because in the choir there are many people who have the illness and we share our stories we've got you know everybody experiences sickle cell differently so it's nice and where we've become like a big unit um, and we get to share it around the world, which is amazing. And we have a laugh. We have a laugh. And that's the main thing. Yes, you have your down days, but also you have your good days. Um, but everyone always says, you know, how is it that you're always smiling? And I think I look at the positive that now I don't see sickle cell as a burden as I did before. I actually see it as a gift and a blessing to have because I can go out and spread the word about sickle cell and make friends. Yeah, I'm happy, literally happy and I couldn't be any more happier. <laughs> so my name is Sharif Tusubide. I was born in Kampala, Uganda, a small East African country. And uh, I have sickle cell disease. So when I was born, uh, my mom and dad had a very sweet love story. They gave birth to their baby boy. Like all parents were very excited to have a baby boy. I think after about four or five months after that, I started to show up. With uh, I was very irritated. I was always crying. And they, they told me I had all the, uh, my, the swollen hands. And they didn't, know, they didn't know what was really going on. And uh, my mom kept on going to different health centers and until the time uh, one doctor did suggest, you know what, we need to do a sickle cell test to be able to find out if this child actually has sickle cell. And so that was the change of their story because uh, once she told my dad, they, they actually broke up and my dad left her because he's like, no, uh, uh, I've not had any child who has sickle cell and in my family we don't have sickle cell disease. So my mom ended up having to raise me as a single mother because my dad had left. During that time, she was pretty scared about what's going on. She didn't know what was going on because at that time, early 90s, sickle cell wasn't really a very big thing. Most people who have sickle cell to date in Uganda, we find that over 90% of the babies who are born in sickle cell die before their fifth birthday. So this is mostly because uh, we don't have a comprehensive follow-up program. 
that you're going to be diagnosed and go to, go to a sickle cell center and be, be followed up, receive all the care, all that has not been there. If it has started to come up, I think in the, in the last one, one or two, three years, we're starting to see sickle cell centers across the country in Uganda. So during that time when she was pretty long, pretty scared, she named me Tusubira. So my second name is Sharif Tusubira. Tusubira means we hope. So her institution with the name of Tusubira was mostly because of the fact that she wanted to have a way to always have some hope in her heart. Because if everyone around you is trying to say, your baby's going to die, every mom will be scared. But as a child growing up, I really, I didn't know what was going on. Yes, I'd have pain and cry and ask what's going on. And uh, my mom did not really have a way of explaining it to me until I think my six or seven years, when I go out to play and kids have come to play with, say, they would say, which means in my local language, do not, do not play with him. He's sick. So that, that's where I start to realize that there's something different about me. So that was my kind of childhood experience. And this was the case whereby you, uh, I'll be on the pitch trying to kick the ball and I feel pain in my leg, feel pain in my hand. And, so that's, and sometimes I just couldn't walk. My friends would have to carry me home. I'd always ask my mom, what's going on? Why me? Why am I feeling like this? Why? I think I remember there was a time after growing up, I asked her for a knife so that I could cut off my hand and cut off my leg because it was bringing too much pain for me. And they're like, no, we can't do that. You can't, you can't, just, you just, can't just cut off the leg because you're in too much pain. But even then, uh, yes, I would feel very stigmatized and feel very bad about it. And when we went, when went to school, it was actually very different as well at school because at school, in the rainy seasons, extreme seasons, I'd be in pain and I couldn't go to school. So you, you miss like two weeks or three weeks of school and the teachers would say, where has he been? And so, so often my mom would have to explain, you know what, he has sickle cell. If he had missed, if he tells you his hands are sick, he can't write, it's fine. You have to understand. But it was really hard for the teachers to understand because like I said, this is a disease that most people did not know about. Like even the teachers are like, this kid has uh, just, just has an excuse. Every time I want him to come and draw on the blackboard, he's saying his hand is hurting. You want him to be part of the class activity, he's saying uh, he feels pain in his leg and feels pain here and there. So that was another issue. Because of my sickle cell, I, I had complications like uh, jaundice in my eyes and had a distended belly. So all those things uh, were, made me look more of an outlier. Like you don't, yes, you look like everyone else, but you, your eyes are pretty yellow. So that's the thing that you have to explain to everyone, why are your eyes yellow? I didn't know how much to, exp- to break it down, but all I would say, yes, I have sickle cell, it's a blood disease. That's all I would say. And when I would get sick and uh, we had a school nurse, I would go and get care from the nurse. So the high school was, was a bit, was a much better experience. So during my second year in the university, I did get sick and I got sick and I missed, I think I missed almost three or four weeks of school. So when everyone was asking where Sharif and I mean, and I didn't really do much disclosure. And that's the time I had started to date. I was, I was dating a very beautiful woman. And when I got sick, I was in the hospital and she tells me, you know what? I can't be with you uh, because of your sickle cell. I mean, I've never seen myself with someone with sickle cell. That was a turning point for me. So that, that was my driving factor now to make uh, a change in not only in my life, but in the life of all those people living sickle cell, such that we, they don't have to go through what I had gone through. So uh, it was me, uh, myself, Ashraf, and two other people, uh, Evelyn and uh, another guy, Salim. We agreed to create an organization called Sickle Cell Network Uganda. It was the first sickle cell nonprofit that we did register. Because of my background and stigma and experience I had, one of the first projects actually implemented was having sickle cell cancer training. When I looked at my background of laboratory science and the fact that in our market you could have people test for HIV, I thought to myself and said, I think we should be able to test for sickle cell. 
uh, we started out at all our community events would have a team of laboratory people to do the sickle cell screening, our counselors to do the genotype counseling so that people could understand what it means if you're a trait, what it means if you, uh, if you have sickle cell and all those things. And after two years of this, our local Ministry of Health actually did uh, accept and uh, adopt this program. It's now been rolled out and several health centers have these rapid sickle cell testing kits and people now can be able to access the sickle cell screening test, whatever they are. So in Uganda, we have a tribe called the Baganda tribe, makes up the biggest proportion of the population. But we did have a local name for sickle cell. And this is not only the Baganda, but most tribes in Uganda do not actually, do not actually have a local name for sickle cell. And the indicator for this means that if you don't have a local name for something, it means you're not talking about it. If you're not talking about it, then, then that explains all the stigma. So because people don't talk about it, there's no name. But the biggest win for me as the advocate is the fact that the, the kingdom gave us a local name for sickle cell. They did say now we pronounce that sickle cell in our language is called Nambidi. At least now somebody who's uneducated, somebody who has never been to school, can have a, a word that they can know to mean sickle cell. And that in a way helps us beat the stigma because then people can be able to talk about in their mother tongue. Uh, looking back on how the journey has come from the time when we introduced uh, community social screening, from the time when we have a local name, to the fact that we, are, we have not been able to support the emergence of so many sickle cell non-profits in you. For example, the time when we started, there was only one non-profit in Uganda working on sickle cell, called Sickle Cell Station of Uganda. Today, as I speak, seven years later, we have over 25 CBOs, community-based organizations, all working for sickle cell in local communities. I think in 2019, I decided, you know what, I've been, I've been an advocate for the past few years. I think I need to think of something more challenging. That's how I, found, I thought of coming back to grad school. And I decided to come back to the U.S. for my grad school. So I came back. I went to the University of Kansas as a PhD student. When I came to the U.S., I was hearing a lot of this thing of the, the, racial, the racial bias in terms of sickle cell. And it had actually never happened to me until one time, I think in May, I, I go to the ER. I had a lot of pain in my, I was actually very sick. I had a lot of pain. I spent the whole day in the ER. They give me all the pain. I was still in pain. And, but guess what happened to me? The, the ER doctor says, uh, you're fine. We have checked everything. You're very normal. So we can't admit you. One of the key driving factors in terms of why, even ad, as advocates living in the U.S., we need to come out and promote more awareness about sickle cell, such that the doctors would have a more understanding. I think one of the key important aspects, may not, uh, it's not, it may not be so much of a big deal in the U.S., but it's a big deal elsewhere in the world, apart whereby people not understanding and accepting sickle cell. Uh, having all these myths and beliefs. So it still goes back to awareness. People and having understand that this is like any other blood disease. If you can take good care of yourself, if you can have a comprehensive follow-up, if you can do whatever we can do to stay healthy, then I can live like any, anybody else. I shouldn't worry about death. I shouldn't worry uh, that I'll not be able to meet my, my, my dreams. My story started out because of a heartbreak, because of a love, sad love story. I ended up being a sickness advocate. Today I was able to find love. I'm married to Sophia and have two kids, Neem and Sheath, and they're, they're part of my support system to keep me healthy and strong and going. So uh, I appreciate them and everyone who's supporting me. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Marsha and Cherie, for sharing your stories with us. We really, really appreciate it. And we want to tell you a bit more about our amazing guests. Marsha started her blog, My Life with Sickle Cell, in 2016 and has since been recognized for her awareness-raising efforts by appearing on TV programs, radio shows, newspapers, you name it. And in her first hand, she mentioned being a member of the Be Positive Choir, which is a choir made up of people with sickle cell disease or those who have friends or family members affected. And the Be Positive Choir has made amazing strides in raising awareness of sickle cell disease as well as encouraging blood donations. And also, as you heard, they were on Britain's Got Talent and performed in front of the royal family, which is pretty dang cool. Um, that's amazing. Our other incredible guest, Sharif, has been instrumental in a number of different advocacy and outreach efforts, which you heard a bit about in his firsthand, including launching the East Africa Sickle Cell Alliance, working with the Pan-African Sickle Cell Federation International, and serving as the first executive director of the Uganda Sickle Cell Rescue Foundation. That's incredible. So amazing. Sharif's amazing advocacy and outreach efforts have been recognized by many organizations. In 2017, he was named a Mandela Washington Fellow through the Young African Leaders Initiative. In 2018, he became a Telemachus Fellow under the Global Thinkers Forum. And this year, 2020, he was named the International Sickle Cell Advocate of the Year. No big deal. (laughs) No big deal. Oh, and he's just casually also getting his PhD studying quantitative genetics at the University of Kansas. Just like casually, <laughs> casually getting a major degree. <laughs> right? Oh my goodness. That's amazing. We will provide links to both Marsha and Sharif's websites and social media handles on our website, thispodcastwillkillyou.com, and in our show notes if you'd like to learn more about these awesome humans and their work. Yeah. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Ullman Updike. And this is This Podcast Will Kill You. This week, we are, as you may have guessed... You might have figured it out by now. (laughs) Covering sickle cell disease. Yeah. This is a big one, obviously. This is a huge one. And we've been wanting to do this one for a while. And I'm very excited now that we're finally doing it because there's so much, there's so much to it. Yeah, absolutely. There's such fascinating biology. I can't wait to learn about the history. I have a feeling it's going to be equal parts fascinating and infuriating. That's my guess. Oh, I would say maybe not not even equal parts. I would say mostly infuriating. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. (laughs) There are some like, you know, shining moments, um, but yeah. Oh, but I can tell you that there are some very exciting things to talk about in the current events section, for which we had the pleasure of speaking with a very special guest, Dr. Megan Hochstrasser, who's Education Programs Manager at Innovative Genomics Institute in Berkeley. (gasps) It's incredible. I'm sure that you may have heard the word CRISPR or genome editing at some point and been like, what the heck is that? Um, don't worry, we're going to get into it at least a little bit. And it's going to make you so thrilled and make you feel like you're living in the future. It's thrilling. But before we get into all of the thrilling things that we're going to talk about today, Erin, what time is it? I believe, Erin, that it is quarantini time. You would be correct about that. What are we (laughs) drinking today? We are drinking the Witten. Lovely. 
Oh, yes. And the Witten is named for Dr. Charles Witten, who, among many other amazing accomplishments, was the co-founder of the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America. And he made amazing strides in raising awareness of sickle cell throughout the 70s and 80s and into the 90s as well. And he also initiated a lot of programs that were designed to provide more opportunities for those underrepresented in medical fields to actually have medical school as an opportunity. So we wanted to name our quarantini in the to honor this amazing human in the tiniest possible way. <laughs> and to do so, what is in this quarantini exactly? <laughs> the Witten is strawberry-infused tequila, which is so good and so also good. just really easy to do, just takes patience, and uh, lime juice and agave syrup. Fabulous. We'll post the full recipe for that quarantini as well as our non-alcoholic placebarita on our website, thispodcastwillkillyou.com, and all of our social media channels, so make sure you're following us. And we have one more piece of business before we get into the business of sickle cell. Just a little one, which is a big news, actually. <laughs> we have new merch. New merch. <laughs> We've been waiting. We're so excited. We have some really fun, cool things. Like, we'll just drop a few little hints. You want a hoodie? We got a hoodie. Oh, we you got some one. socks? Oh, we you need socks. some socks to keep your toes warm. <laughs> Big shout out to Abigail Irvin Penner, whose always incredible artwork is featured on so many of these. Honestly, like I'm I'm in love. I can't wait to be TPWKY head to toe, baby. I mean, literally. literally head, to head, toe head to toe and for my sips. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> if you would like to see this new merch, you can head to thispodcastwillkillyou.com and click on the merch tab at the top of the screen. All right. Is that all of our business, Erin? I believe so. Well, then, let's take a quick break and dive straight into the biology of sickle cell. Let's do it. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. So, sickle cell disease, or SCD, I think it's often taught as sickle cell anemia, right? This like one particular illness. But in fact, sickle cell disease is a group of disorders of red blood cells. 
And it's a genetic disease, which means it's inherited. So it's caused by a mutation. But as we'll see, it's not just one single mutation and there's not just one single manifestation. So we're going to start from the very beginning before we even get into sickle cell disease itself and talk about blood. Cool? Yes. Okay. We've talked about blood before a little bit. We have, but we've never talked about this. (laughs) (laughs) We have talked about, when have we talked about blood? Hepatitis C. Oh, yeah. This is a totally different blood discussion. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So what we're going to talk specifically about is... In our red blood cells, the protein that is actually responsible for carrying oxygen, and that protein is hemoglobin, okay? Mm -hmm. So hemoglobin is a protein that's made up of four polypeptides, two pairs of polypeptides, and these four polypeptides, or strings of amino acids, form the protein that's in our red blood cells that actually carries oxygen, which obviously our tissues need in order to survive. So in most adult red blood cells, hemoglobin is made up of two alpha chains alphas, and two beta chains. So alpha, alpha, beta, beta. Okay? Sounds good. Now, we also have some other forms of hemoglobin, like you can have two alpha chains and two delta chains. That's another kind of adult hemoglobin. And then in a fetus, before we are born, the majority of our hemoglobin is actually two alpha chains and two gamma chains, and that's called fetal hemoglobin. Why? Great question. So glad you asked. (laughs) So you know how fetuses are grown inside and all of their blood comes from mom, right? Uh Uh-huh. So that means that all of the blood that a fetus is getting is already partially deoxygenated. It doesn't have as much oxygen as the blood in our bloodstream because we're breathing in air. So because of that, fetal hemoglobin has to actually bind oxygen more tightly than adult hemoglobin because it has to be able to get all of that oxygen out of mom's blood. Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, remember that because it's going to become very important in our discussion of sickle cell later. Okay? Okay. So... Now we understand hemoglobin inside normal adult red blood cells. So what does that mean for sickle cell disease? Why did I tell you all that? Turns out that sickle cell disease is produced by a single amino acid change. If anyone cares, it's a glutamic acid to a valine. That, That in that beta hemoglobin chain. Okay. So it's a single mutation in beta hemoglobin that results in what's called like sickled beta hemoglobin. So HBS instead of HBA for adult. That is the change that if you have two copies of that mutated beta globin gene, you have sickle cell anemia, the disease caused by two copies of these sickle cell genes. So what happens if you have these sickle cell versions of beta hemoglobin? Well, what happens is that in your red blood cells, at low oxygen concentrations, like low overall oxygen concentrations in your blood, the hemoglobin forms a polymer. 
So multiple subunits, like multiple little globules of hemoglobin protein, will link together inside the red blood cell and form a linear chain. Like a little string of beads? Like a little string of beads, exactly. And this becomes rigid and causes a deformation in the whole red blood cell so that it kind of sucks in on itself and becomes sickle-shaped or like a crescent moon shaped. Mm -hmm. So a normal adult red blood cell, even a fetal red blood cell, is shaped kind of like a donut. Like the, you know, the things you go down the lazy river in, those like inflatable tubes with like the mesh in the middle so your butt doesn't fall through. Oh, I've never had one that had the mesh, but sure. The fancy version. Okay. (laughs) So that's kind of what a normal red blood cell looks like. So when you have two copies of this sickle cell beta hemoglobin gene, all of your hemoglobins line up in the red blood cell and sickle it. So instead of that nice donut, you have a C-shaped red blood cell. And that is kind of the core problem that results from two copies of this sickle cell gene. But how, how is that like, okay, it's just a different shape of your red blood cell. Why is that so bad? So these sickled cells are very rigid, okay? Normal red blood cells are kind of like an inflatable donut. They're kind of squishy and squashy, okay? So as they move through your blood vessels, through from larger vessels to smaller vessels like your capillaries, they can squash and deform and scooch through small vessels and then pop back out on the other side. Sickled cells are more rigid, so they can't do that as well. So what happens is these cells can start to get stuck, especially in small vessels, okay? But it's not just the rigidness of the sickled red blood cells. So it turns out that once a red blood cell sickles like this, they're also literally stickier, like proteins on the outside of them become more sticky so that they get stuck to the walls of your vessels, and they get stuck to other like white blood cells and things that are rolling along in your vessels. Okay. And imagine what happens if you have a bunch of cells starting to stick to one another inside of your blood vessels. Well, you get a blood clot. You're going to get a blood clot. Exactly. And so kind of the hallmark of sickle cell disease that we'll talk a little bit more about in a minute when we talk about the symptoms are what's called vaso-occlusive crises. So you literally have occlusion or blockage of your vessels, small vessels like capillaries, but even larger vessels like in your brain leading to stroke. That sounds terrible. It's not great. That's for sure. And there's more, okay? So now we know that these sickled cells, they get more sticky, they can get stuck in places. But on top of that, so red blood cells only sickle at lower oxygen concentrations, okay? So for the most part in your arteries, even if you have sickle cell disease, your red blood cells are going to be in normal shape. It's not until you reach the capillaries or the veins where oxygen concentration is lower that these the hemoglobin will form those chains and then cause the red blood cell to sickle. But this is reversible. But there's two problems with it. First of all, this tends to happen in micro vessels like your capillaries and small veins because that's where both oxygen concentration is low Mm -hmm. and you have slow flow. So the red blood cells in there for a long time comparatively. 
And so those two things combined lead to sickling. And in small vessels, if you sickle and you get stuck, then you can block those small vessels directly. Gotcha. Now another thing happens. Over time, this constant sickling and unsickling, sickling and unsickling, causes damage to the red blood cell membrane itself. So like the outer shell of the red blood cell. And this can cause an irreversible sickling. So now it's just stuck sickled all the time. And those sickled cells in particular are very, very sticky. So that can cause sticking on the inside of vessel walls and to white blood cells in larger vessels, which can eventually lead to blockage of even larger vessels, not just small ones. Right. And it seems like the white blood cell thing then will play a role in immune system function. Oh, you're so accurate, Erin. Um, here's a question. Yeah. And maybe it's jumping the gun. Okay. but. Your body, as we talked about in the hepatitis C episode, your body makes a lot, like makes new red blood cells very frequently. Mm -hmm. And so what does it do? Like, does it attack the sickled cells in any way? Or like, what is their lifespan? I'm so glad that you asked, Erin. It's totally jumping the gun, but it's the perfect question. I (laughs) I love it. So yeah. Okay. I'm going to answer that question in a couple parts, okay? Okay. So first of all, you're right that white blood cells and things play a big role. And overall, even though this is technically a disease of just red blood cells, right? It's just hemoglobin being messed up. It's not just a disease that affects your red blood cells. Overall, there's an increase in inflammation and inflammatory state in sickle cell disease. And the more inflammation, so the higher people's leukocyte counts or white blood cell counts, the worse off their disease tends to be. And as we'll see, there's huge variation in disease severity. And that's one factor that plays a role. Now, in terms of how long these blood cells last, that's a perfect question to ask. A normal, healthy red blood cell has a lifespan of about 120 days. In someone with sickle cell disease, that lifespan is reduced by over 75%. So some estimates that I saw were the lifespan of a red blood cell in a person with sickle cell disease, so that's two copies of that sickle cell gene, is about 16 days. Oh, wow. And so, so you, even if you, even if your body is producing blood, it's not enough to make up for the, the loss. Oh, you're, you're getting the perfect, yes, 100%. So there's two ways that you get anemia. One, like you said, you just can't make enough because you need to constantly make more red blood cells and more red blood cells. But on top of that, as those cells sickle and unsickle and become damaged, that leads to hemolysis. So red blood cells actually breaking open within your vasculature. So not only can you have anemia from lack of production, You can also have a hemolytic anemia, so breaking open those red blood cells. Now, that leads to even more problems because when you burst open red blood cells, all that hemoglobin that's inside those red blood cells is now released into the bloodstream. And this causes like a whole host of biochemistry reactions I'm not going to get into. But one thing that it does is it scavenges up all of the nitric oxide, which is an important molecule that helps with things like vasodilation. So as your hemoglobin sucks up all that nitric oxide, now you have increased vasoconstriction as well as damage to like the epithelium of the the lining of your blood vessels, which causes even more stickiness, okay? So it's like this horrible feedback loop 
if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Where you have smaller vessels because you have less nitric oxide. You have damage to the inner layer, which increases the stickiness. You have inflammation. So there's white blood cells rolling around, picking things up. And it's it's bad. It's a mess. Okay. Yeah. That's like a from one amino acid substitution. What? This, this systemic these systemic problems. Isn't that it's fascinating that you can have so many effects from one single and I mean it's a single nucleotide. It's a single base pair change. Right. Right. Oh it's wow. Yeah. Man. Okay, so let's talk about what these symptoms then look like. So now we know like what's happening in your blood vessels and it kind of all boils down to like increased inflammation and blocking your vessels, okay? So I said this already, but the main complication are these vasoocclusive crises. And so these can manifest, as you can probably imagine, in so many different ways depending on what vessels are getting blocked up, okay? Mm-hmm. So in small children, especially tiny babies, like under the age of two, the most common presentation is when the small blood vessels in their hands and feet get clogged up. This causes swelling of the hands and the feet. And this is really, really painful as well because you're literally blocking blood flow to your hands and feet. And so in small babies that for example, didn't have a newborn screen done, so they didn't know, their parents maybe didn't know that they had sickle cell anemia, this is a really common way that they would come into the emergency room and be identified as having sickle cell anemia. Okay. Is there treatment for that aspect of it, or is it... So we'll talk about treatment more later, Mm -hmm. but for the the most part, uh, not really. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. God. Yeah. Um... Okay, so then as you can imagine, as you get older, these pain crises, these vaso-occlusive crises just kind of keep happening and they can happen almost anywhere. Um, So it's very common for people to come in with massive, massive amounts of pain without any kind of, you you can't see anything wrong with them Mm -hmm. because it's these tiny blood vessels in your abdomen or your legs, in your arms, anywhere that get clogged up. This causes a huge amount of pain. If you imagine like a heart attack happens when you have a blockage of blood flow to your heart. Heart attacks are extremely painful. This is happening in small vessels throughout somebody's body during a sickle cell crisis. Mm Mm-hmm. This is a a disease that is, I think, often very misunderstood, and the the pain, I think, can be minimized by people because it's not visible. It's another kind of disease like we've talked about before where you, you don't look sick necessarily. And so I think it's really important to get across just how debilitating the pain associated with these can be. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny that you're using the phrases invisible and invisible because I that's like that's my theme in <laughs> when I talk about the, the history of it. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's it's bad. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then you also can have additional symptoms or sort of more specific symptoms depending on where you have these blockages. Uh, it can happen in people that have a penis. It can happen. And you can get what's called priapism, which is a long-lasting and very painful erection. If it happens in 
the blood vessels under your skin, especially in your legs, which is really common, it can cause chronic ulcers, so open wounds on your legs that are unable to heal because they're not getting good blood flow over time. Mm -hmm. If it happens in your eyes, it can lead to blindness because the vessels in your retina become blocked. God. It can happen in your bones, and this is very serious because your bones are also alive. They need blood flow. So when you block off the vessels to your bones, you get what's called avascular necrosis. So that means tissue death because of lack of blood flow. So your bone marrow will literally die. Oh my God. Yep. So that's pretty bad, as you can imagine. That can yeah. also lead you susceptible to like osteomyelitis, which is infection of your bone, like a bacterial <sighs> infection of your bone because you don't have good blood flow to that bone. It can happen in your spleen, which is very common. And with your spleen, kind of two different things can happen. So you can have like an what's called an acute splenic crisis. So all of a sudden your spleen, like blood flow to your spleen gets blocked. This can cause your spleen to enlarge very rapidly and that can kill you. Like that alone can kill you. Your spleen is an organ where a ton of blood flows through it because it's a lymphatic organ. So all of your white blood cells kind of hang out in your spleen and are responsible for like gobbling up bacteria and cleaning your bloodstream of infection, okay? So because it has such huge volumes of blood flow, if you block that blood flow, then you can die just from that alone. But it can also happen, and it commonly does happen, where over time, small vessels get blocked little by little in your spleen, leading to long-term death of your spleen, what's called auto-infarction. Right. So that a person, even though they have a spleen in their body, it's essentially non-functional. It's like you removed it. So that leaves you very susceptible to infection, especially bacterial infections, because you don't have a spleen to take care of all those bacteria. So it's very common for people, especially young children, to die not from sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease itself, but from an overwhelming bacterial infection because their spleen is non-functional. God. Another really horrible outcome would be stroke. And this is especially what is so tragic is that stroke is very common in young kids with sickle cell anemia. Mm. Um, And so that's essentially not just from small vessels being blocked, but from larger blood vessels in your brain that get blocked. And then overall, the most common cause of death and the second most common cause of Emergency room visit for someone with sickle cell anemia, at least in this country, is what's called acute chest syndrome or ACS. And this is when you essentially get those crises in your lungs. Oh my God. Yeah. And what is awful and also very interesting about ACS is that the trigger for that can be almost anything. So it doesn't necessarily start with just these sickled cells blocking blood vessels. It can be a viral infection that causes inflammation that then triggers all these events. It could be an asthma attack because you can have asthma and sickle cell that triggers all of these events. It can be 
fat embolism, because if you have, for example, necrosis of your bones, your bone marrow is full of fat. Little pieces of that fat can break off and travel to your lungs. And then those little emboli, they're called, can cause a blockage that can then trigger all these downstream effects. So acute chest syndrome, ACS, is it's basically a triad of extreme chest pain, infiltrates, so fluid and junk all over your lungs, and then what's called arterial hypoxemia, so not able to get oxygen in your arteries because of all this fluid and junk in your lungs. This is horrible. It's really, really awful. Um, So yeah, that's kind of the overall symptom picture of what happens with sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease. And so these happen, like you talked about, these tend to happen at different stages of someone's life. So what, like, why is that? Is it just a matter of, of like your body growing and like certain things growing at certain times more? Like, yeah, Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. It's not, I don't fully know, but it is the case that people tend to present differently at different ages. So like in very young kids, the first presentation might be that hand and foot swelling, right? In like a very young baby. As they get older, especially under five, it's very common to have bacterial infections that can end up becoming very serious. Then at a certain age, stroke is a common manifestation. And then after that, these pain crises and acute chest syndrome. Right. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And then on top of that, like we said kind of already, you have kind of chronic anemia. So not enough red blood cells, this hemolysis, which leads to fatigue. It leads to jaundice. You can have gallstones very commonly because of all this hemoglobin in your bloodstream. It can cause the formation of gallstones. So you can have huge pain from that. It's it's very bad. Kidney failure is really common if you block the kidneys the bloodstream to your kidneys, you can have kidney failure. That's really common. I mean, it's it's everything. It's I mean, anywhere, anywhere that your blood, blood flows. flows. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Jeez. And what I also want to mention that I think is often glossed over is the huge amount of mental and behavioral health complications from this. Depression and anxiety are very, very high among people living with sickle cell because they have chronic pain. Not only are they living with chronic pain, not only do they have a reduced life expectancy, they're frequently in the emergency room. They're frequently being hospitalized. That's a massive amount of financial cost that's incurred. And on top of that, there's a long-standing history of medical professionals not believing or not taking seriously the pain that you're in. So, yeah, the, this is a very it's a single mutation that leads to so very many complications. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, is it a single mutation? I don't sh- There's my transition. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so all of that is kind of the description of sickle cell anemia, which is when you have two copies of that mutated beta globin gene so that you have messed up hemoglobin. That's not the only way that you can have sickle cell disease. There are a number of other mutations that can result in sickle cell disease that is usually less severe than sickle cell anemia, although in some cases it's almost as severe. 
So if you have one copy of the sickle, like HBS, that sickle cell allele, and then you have one copy of a beta thalassemia allele. So beta thalassemia is something most people might have heard of, or thalassemia maybe you've heard of. This is another entirely separate mutation of your beta globin gene. Right. You can have one copy of HBS and one copy of beta thalassemia. Then you kind of have thalassemia and you kind of have sickle cell disease. You have like a combination of both. So typically your symptoms aren't going to be as severe as someone with two copies of sickle cell, but you're still going to have some of that. You can still have some cells that sickle essentially. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. There's another gene called HBC that's like another form of sickle cell. So you can be HBS, HBC. That's a whole nother one. There's another type of thalassemia called alpha thalassemia. So that's where those alpha polypeptides are messed up rather than the betas in your hemoglobin. Hmm. And that typically leads to actually like a less severe form of sickle cell anemia or of sickle cell disease. Why? Like what's the difference between the alpha and the beta that it would be a different So it's actually, this is very complicated, but it's actually because instead of only two copies of alpha, we have four copies of alpha. So if you have just one mutation, you still have three good copies. Gotcha. So what's I think really important to kind of, it's a good question. I'm glad you asked that, Erin, because what's important about this is that if you have one copy of this HBS, the sickle cell allele, you're still going to make that kind of messed up beta hemoglobin, but you'll make enough normal that you won't have these sickling events. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You make enough normal hemoglobin that they can't form those chains and sickle unless you have like extremely low um, oxygen concentrations. Okay. So in rare instances, you can still get sickling, but in general, it's going to be a lot less. It's not going to be nearly as many of your red blood cells. If you have two copies, all you make is a messed up beta hemoglobin. Okay. So all of your red blood cells have this messed up hemoglobin. Okay. Right. And this is where like the, the language around it is so important to remember, like the difference between sickle cell disease, sickle cell trait and sickle cell anemia. Exactly. And that's led to a lot of confusion um, in the history of it as I'll talk about. Yeah. And so sickle cell trait would be if you have one copy of HBS and one copy of a normal HBA or normal adult hemoglobin. Right, right. Oh gosh. So yeah, okay. I think that's all about those types of things. Uh, what else do you want to know about the biology, Erin? I've got more for you. Um, well, I want to know about treatments. Okay, let's talk about it. It's not <laughs> great. <laughs> okay. There are some good things. Um, So remember how, especially for young kids, the most common cause of like death is overwhelming bacterial infection. So in many countries in the world, we now screen for sickle cell disease in newborns. And if you identify somebody with sickle cell disease, you can start treating them prophylactically. So before they ever get sick with penicillin. So these kids get penicillin just every day for like the first five years of their life. So that has reduced the death rate to like less than 3% compared to over 25%. Mm-hmm. That's um, great. So that's great. Vaccinating babies uh, is massively helpful in preventing overwhelming infection. 
because we have vaccines for a lot of the things that commonly cause infection in these kids. Um, But beyond that, so that's kind of like we can prevent kids from dying at a very young age from sickle cell. Uh, But beyond that, we really have cruddy treatment for sickle cell disease and sickle cell anemia. Um, If somebody comes in with one of these acute crises of pain, there's not much more to do besides pain control, which I'm sure you'll talk more about later is like, Mm -hmm. yeah, the problems, so many problems. Um, You can give transfusions. uh, So you can do an exchange transfusion where you take out their blood and give them new blood, essentially. So that can decrease the amount of sickled cells in their blood, which can be very helpful. But the only actual treatment, like drug that we have is hydroxyurea, Mm -hmm. which this is so fascinating. We have no idea how it does this, but what it does is it increases the amount of that fetal hemoglobin, that gamma hemoglobin. I see your confused face, Erin. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> how? Why? Why is how? Okay. How? Do I we can't have answer. a normal amount? Do we have like an any amount of gamma hemoglobin just circulating at any given time? Yes. So oh, in, okay. And great question. Uh, potentially yes. And there's massive amounts of variation in how much fetal hemoglobin a non sickle cell disease person produces, and even within someone with sickle cell disease how much fetal hemoglobin they have correlates to how severe their disease is. So the more fetal hemoglobin, the less severe their disease tends to be. So giving somebody hydroxyurea increases the production of fetal hemoglobin, decreases the severity of disease. That's fascinating. Fascinating. And I have a question. Okay. Do you know... Is there any sort of elevational or altitudinal gradient in terms of like, let's say if populations whose ancestral history has been mostly like high elevation, do they produce more uh, gamma hemoglobin than those at lower elevations? That's such a good question. And I can't remember. That is such a good question, Erin. I can't remember. Um, I don't know if people tend to have higher fetal hemoglobin, but there are certainly adaptations in populations that have lived for a long time at high altitudes where their hemoglobin has a higher affinity. So it binds tighter to oxygen the way that fetal hemoglobin does the same way. Interesting. Yeah. There's there's so much more to that whole, like the whole oxygen thing and altitude. We can't get into it, but I yeah. know. I mean, there's. We really should do like an episode on on blood. Um, Ooh, because I also want to talk about blood groups at some point. Oh, I know. We've never done that. That would be super yeah. fun. I'd love to talk about blood even more. Okay, people will be experts by then because we did it in hepatitis, and now we're doing hemoglobin. It's cool. <laughs> um. Okay, so that's hydroxyurea. So that is considered a disease-modifying agent. It's the only one we have because it actually improves your functioning, essentially, by increasing the amount of fetal hemoglobin. But the only cure, and I'm going to put that in air quotes, is bone marrow transplant. But that has its own suite of problems. Absolutely. Always does. Um, Yeah. So it has to be, you know, a perfectly or very well-matched donor, which is very difficult to find. Um, It requires that you wipe out somebody's entire bone marrow first, which leads them very susceptible to infection. Then once you put in the new bone marrow, 
you can have auto rejection, etc. Um, and so because the severity of sickle cell disease and sickle cell anemia is so, it ranges so much, transplants are not generally done except in very severe cases. And even then only in high income countries like the US or the UK. So it's very rare, essentially, which is problematic since that's the only curative treatment that we have. Right. And it's like curative as in like it's done forever. Like you're if yeah, as long as your body doesn't reject it, then yes. Yeah. You wow. have you have brand new bone marrow, so you no longer make these sickled cells. You could still pass that on, right? You would still be able to if you had a kid, they could have either sickle cell trait or sickle cell anemia because mm-hmm. it but um but yeah, you would be cured. Yeah. Uh I think that's all the major things I wanted to talk about for the biology. Okay. Gosh. This is a big one. It's a big one. Erin, where did this come from? Why does anyone have to live with sickle cell disease? And what the heck is up with this mutation? Tell me about it. Okay. As soon as we take a short break. Okay, so to tell the history of sickle cell trait and sickle cell anemia, for this I'm going to concentrate primarily on the HBS form, not talk about thalassemia. This is just about sickle cell anemia and sickle cell trait. Mm -hmm. I think that the best place to start is in the name itself Mm. because, you know, aside from being one of my favorite things to learn about and talk about for any disease – It can also be incredibly revealing, Mm -hmm. especially in the case of sickle cell, because the name tells us not only what those who named it saw and what was important to them in describing this disease, but it also makes us consider what discovery is, like what does discovery mean and how often that term is misapplied to something that could more accurately be called a development. Ooh. So, um... When the term sickle cell anemia was first used by Western medicine in 1922, named by Dr. Verna Reem Mason, the medical field was still in the midst of this big rush of new technology and new theories and new hypotheses that led to enormous leaps forward in the understanding of disease, both infectious and non-infectious. And with huge improvements in, you know, microscopic, surgical, and other medical tools, physicians could now get a much more detailed look at what was going on inside the human body. And among other things, this led to a shift in how diagnoses were made. So previously, doctors may have had to rely solely on symptoms of disease as described by the patient, but with these new tools, it allowed for measurements and observation. So the art of medicine was becoming a science, and this Mm -hmm. is something that we've kind of talked about before. Yeah. And the vast increase in knowledge of medicine and the human body also changed the medical field in terms of specialization. 
Because with the volume of information that was growing day by day, it was nearly impossible for one person to learn it all and retain it all. Mm. And so there was not only the capacity, but also the need for specialists in certain fields. Okay. Interesting. And so both of these shifts were enormously beneficial to the people being treated. Because with an accurate diagnosis, you had a greater chance of getting appropriate treatment and care. Mm -hmm. But there were also some unintended consequences. So in some ways, medicine became more about the body and less about the person. And the heightened attention paid to measurements or direct observation could sometimes take away from the experience of the person receiving treatment. And this is reflected in the naming of sickle cell anemia. Mm. As you mentioned, the term sickle cell describes the shape of the affected cells, which is a direct result of the mutated allele. And it was given that name by the physicians who first observed these types of cells under a microscope. But the condition, the experience of sickle cell anemia had been known long before the 1900s, thousands of years before, and people who lived in areas of high prevalence, notably in parts of Africa, had names for the disease as well. And I have a list of these names, but I don't want to butcher them entirely. But one of the commonalities of these names is that they have sort of this onomatopoeia, this onomatopoetic like rhythm to them. And that's because it represented the repetitive gnawing pain of sickle cell anemia rather than the cellular morphology. Right. So it's like a description of what people were going through, not just this, what the cell looks like. Exactly. Fascinating. And there was also another name that was reported in the African medical literature in the late 1800s. It was a term agbanjis, meaning children who come and go. which is in reference to the high childhood mortality. Yeah. And so, yeah, these names describe someone's experience with the disease and perhaps how they would define it rather than a cellular observation, which was completely removed from the experience. I mean, if you think about it, if you have sickle cell anemia, you are probably familiar with these extremely painful episodes characteristic of the disease, but you may have never seen your own sickle-shaped cells under a microscope. Right. So I just think that was a very, yeah. Um, Oh, I love that, Erin. That's so, so interesting and important. And I don't think I ever would have thought thought about it, quite honestly. Well, and this is not my observation. This is something I've read in a book. But I think it also, it did make me think about other diseases that we have talked about. And, and, you know, there is a lot of meaning in a name, whether it's specific to a location. And we've Mm -hmm. talked about the issues with that. And or whether it's these, this very clinical, detached way, objective way of looking at a condition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, th- I mean, there are some other ones that have, that are more about the experience itself, like dengue, I remember, may have some link to the, the painful bone breaking yeah. um, sensation. But yeah, it's a... Uh, That's it's, very interesting. It was interesting. Yeah. And... Also, as the author of one of the books I read pointed out, the sharp contrast between the visible, the sickle-shaped cells, and the invisible, the excruciating pain endured Mm -hmm. in the various names of sickle cell anemia, in many ways, it mirrors the history of the disease, particularly throughout the 20th and 21st centuries in the U.S. Ooh. Okay. So... 
Though there were some brief descriptions of what was likely sickle cell anemia since the 1800s, the mid-1800s, the first clinical description of the disease was made in 1904 by the University of Chicago physician James Herrick, who reported, quote, peculiar elongated and sickle-shaped red blood corpuscles <laughs> in a 20-year-old patient of his named Walter Clement Knoll, who was originally from Grenada and the only person of, of African descent to be accepted into the Chicago College of Dental Surgery that year. Wow. Yeah. So Noel had some, I don't know if it's Noel or Noel, so I'm just saying Noel. <laughs> Noel had some ulcers on his leg and described painful episodes and other symptoms of anemia. And so Herrick drew some blood and gave it to his intern named Ernest Irons to check it out. And Irons made the actual observation, like that description, mm -hmm. but Herrick reported his findings at a conference in 1910, and then Irons was given no credit. As per um, usual. <laughs> as per usual. And although Walter Clement Knoll recovered from his illness after his visit to Herrick, he did die at a young age, at 32, mm -hmm. um, of pneumonia 12 mm -hmm. years after that visit. Mm-hmm. And this first description of sickle cell anemia was closely followed by many others who noted that it primarily affected black Americans of African descent, these are all American physicians, and that complications arising from the condition often led to death at an early age. And despite these warning bells going, hey, we have a serious disease here on our hands, maybe we should learn more about it and how to treat it, sickle cell anemia remained largely invisible for a couple of decades before finally gaining some recognition in the 1930s. Wow. Okay, so why was sickle cell anemia obscured for so long? I can There are guess. many reasons. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Part of it was the pre-antibiotic high prevalence of acute infectious diseases and also pre-vaccine, some of which mimicked the symptoms of sickle cell anemia, such as malaria, and made it more difficult to see this disease underneath. Uh, and when antibiotics, vaccines, and infectious disease control policies were implemented in the you know, early decades of the 20th century, other chronic diseases became much more visible. So it was like kids were just getting sick and dying from sickle cell anemia before they knew that it was because of sickle cell anemia. Exactly. Okay, that makes sense. Exactly. Um, but of course, the other enormous component was the inherent racism in medicine. Yep. Higher rates of disease, higher infant mortality, and lower life expectancies overall in Black Americans compared to white Americans was dismissed by the vast majority of those in the medical field, which, of course, were primarily white, mm -hmm. as either evidence for a biological basis of race Or they said, oh, that this is just indicating that, you know, there's large widespread ignorance of medical practices. Oh, geez. And essentially, the fact that Black Americans faced worse health outcomes was seen as normal, as an inevitability. I would say, unfortunately, that still is. The bias in medicine? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this... This false concept of racial superiority in biology is so longstanding mm -hmm. and insidious and is still, like we talked about, very present today in medicine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So following the American Civil War, some opponents of emancipation claimed that the black race would die out and that the high rates of disease and poverty among black people were evidence that enslavement was a good thing. Jeez. 
And these paternalistic beliefs bled into policy, policies which were designed to uphold these divisions of class and privilege and prevent any movements across those invisible but very real lines. Mm -hmm. In addition, there was the bigger issue of how risks of disease overall were perceived. So in much of the American South, for instance, discussions about disease were framed as the dangers posed by Black people rather than the dangers the diseases posed to Black people. What? So this is something that like, I've talked about before in the context of syphilis, tuberculosis, yeah. hookworm, and so on. So high rates of disease among Black people were not seen as worrisome because they were directly damaging the health and, you know, shortening life expectancy of black people, it was more, oh, well, we don't want white people to get sick from black people. Right. So that is where the focus primarily right. was. How can we prevent white people from getting sick with what the black people have? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh... Yeah. And this shaped policy and attitudes toward public health and access to health care. Basically, the only way a public health policy was going to be enacted or research funds awarded was if the disease affected or threatened to affect white Americans in some way. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so when antibiotics and vaccines became more widely available throughout the 1930s and 40s, the widespread prevalence of chronic diseases such as sickle cell anemia was revealed. Mm. At the same time, the commodification of health and people's bodies had really ramped up. And what I mean by that is that basically alongside the medical developments of the late 19th century and early 20th century, people's health and bodies began to be assigned a monetary value. Mm. How much did this procedure cost? How much did that medicine cost? How much did someone's poor health limit their productive output? Right. Disability-adjusted life years and... Yep, right. The medical profession contributed to this not just through the exchange of money for treatment, but also by assigning intrinsic values to certain conditions. People with rarer diseases were seen as valuable to the medical profession. Hospitals in poverty-stricken, densely populated urban areas were considered to be great places to get experience and training as a medical student. Mm. And the term clinical material was frequently used as a way to even further remove the person from the medical experience, as in whatever general hospital supplied an adequate amount of clinical material to train students at not one, but two medical schools. I'm sorry. So that means clinical material, meaning sick humans. humans. Yeah. Humans wow. or like different cases or like different surgeries. I mean, and this is like... This still t this is still today. Oh, people it, are. It really it's is. very much like oh, you should do you should you know get experience there because you're likely to see more oh, of you, these diseases. The amount of times I heard oh, we've got really interesting pathology at this residency program. I'm mm -hmm. like, wow, that's horrible for the people in that area. But yeah, yep, mm -hmm. yeah. And employers also played a large role and continue to play a large role in the commodification of health. Mm -hmm. Maximize profits and productivity by ensuring that your employees are well enough to work. Mm -hmm. And of course, if your health can't be improved, consider dropping them. Against this backdrop of this enormous growth of medical knowledge, reduction of infectious disease, and commodification of health and disease, awareness of sickle cell anemia rose greatly. And in the coming decades, this fame would grow to become, in some ways, a double-edged sword. Mm. 
So on the one hand, the adoption of sickle cell anemia throughout the 1950s, 60s, 70s as a cause by many social groups and the increase in research funding for it led to a great deal of important knowledge being gained and in raising awareness overall. Mm -hmm. Researchers fascinated by the puzzle that the disease posed, not necessarily by the people experiencing the Mm -hmm. disease, um, they had uncovered that certain conditions like low oxygen and high acidity could induce sickling of cells, and they had also observed that sickling could also result in people who did not have the disease but were relatives of those that did. In 1949, two papers published nearly simultaneously by Dr. James Neal and Colonel E.A. Beat presented the hypothesis that the disease was an autosomal recessive trait, Mm -hmm. meaning that it was inherited, and like you said, the two copies were required for disease to be present. Um, I also want to note that, once again, discovery versus development, that the inheritability of sickle cell anemia had long been recognized in some groups where the disease was especially prevalent, mm-hmm. uh, such as among certain populations in Ghana. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Yeah. And also in 1949, Dr. Harvey Itano and Dr. Linus Pauling demonstrated that the sickling was caused by an abnormality in the hemoglobin molecule, mm-hmm. prompting them to call it a molecular disease. I think it might actually be the first disease described as a molecular disease. A few years later, the individual amino acid substitution leading to the structural change in hemoglobin was identified, teaching researchers that that single mutation could be responsible for this whole suite of systemic effects on the body. Yeah, which is pretty incredible. Oh, yeah. But a huge shift in the notion or representation of sickle cell trait or that sickle cell that mutated allele as a disease condition came about with the hypothesis first floated in like the mid 1940s that the sickle cell trait so again one copy of that mutated allele Mm -hmm. actually provided a level of protection against the falciparum malaria parasite Mm -hmm. giving insight into why the allele was present at relatively high rates despite its deleterious effects right And so this is an example of what is called a balanced polymorphism. And this turned the the dichotomy or this longstanding dogma of normal equals good and abnormal equals bad on its head. Yeah. It's why the term normal is stupid. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's inadequate. It doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, what is normal? Like it, that's not, it's, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's hard. Like I'm like, I don't, I don't know what other word to use, but that it's not a good word in medicine. I know. Cause we need to improve our vocabulary. Yeah. For that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, but these, these scientific breakthroughs, particularly in its labeling as a molecular disease and all the hype that that generated, Mm -hmm. um, it got a lot of researchers super excited to jump on the sickle cell train, which was also, you know, pulled forward by the increasing interconnectedness of hospitals, research institutions, public health departments, and outreach groups. And this wealth of new information about the nature of sickle cell trait and sickle cell anemia did not, though, necessarily translate directly into lives saved. Because in in much of the South, racial segregation still prohibited Black Americans from seeking care at the highest funded hospitals, which were, of course, white only. Yeah. Wow. In addition, uh, and here comes the other side of that, you know, double-edged sword, despite these advancements in the understanding of the disease, 
outside of academia, such as in political discussions or debates, clear knowledge about the exact nature of sickle cell anemia lagged far behind, especially in understanding the difference between sickle cell trait and sickle cell anemia. Mm. For instance, during World War II, a controversial debate arose about whether sickle cell trait, so having the one copy, posed a threat to the health of soldiers who had the trait. In other words, posed a threat to war efforts. Oh, gosh. Suddenly, this disease that had been invisible for so long was now visible and could be used to discriminate against those with the disease or even just the trait. After four people in the Marine Corps with sickle cell trait died after a training exercise at high elevation, strict limits were placed on whether those with sickle cell trait could become pilots, either in the armed forces or commercial airlines, or hold other positions. So not just in armed forces, so there was like a like a huge, um, huge restrictions placed on that, but also in other parts of the workforce. So like flight attendants, there was a lot of issues with health health insurance carriers dropping people who who were found to have sickle cell trait or sickle cell anemia. Oh my god! Uh, and so these restrictions were were instances of racial discrimination. Yeah, since the overwhelming majority of those forbidden from entering the armed forces, for instance, due to sickle cell trait, were black. Right, and class action lawsuits led to the removal of some of these restrictions, but only decades after they were first put in place. Oh my god. But of course, just because restrictions are gone does not mean that racial discrimination in the workplace was gone. And whether it was because the parent of a child with sickle cell anemia was more likely to miss work or if they themselves were affected, there was simply no shortage of ways for people to be discriminated against. Into the 1960s and 1970s, sickle cell trait and sickle cell anemia moved or was pulled even further into the spotlight. Mm. In academic circles, sickle cell became the focus of narratives that interwove biology, anthropology, and history to explain whatever story was the goal of the author. And these narratives were sometimes criticized for their tendency to make sweeping generalizations about entire groups of people or entire places, or for forcing the facts to fit the story, mm. making it sort of a just-so story. Other researchers finally began talking about how sickle cell disease and inadequate medical care may lead to poverty rather than poverty being the cause of disease and ill health yeah. and understanding the more of the, the cycle of, of poverty and access to health care. And in the sociopolitical sphere, sickle cell disease took on new meaning during the civil rights movement of the 1960s. It was held by some civil rights groups to be symbolic of the long-standing, invisible, or ignored pain and suffering experienced by so many who had long been racially discriminated against mm. and whose access to healthcare had always been restricted. Mm. Despite the increased awareness of sickle cell, it still lagged behind other genetic diseases in terms of funding, particularly those that disproportionately affected white people, such as cystic fibrosis. Oh, yeah. So, for example, in 1967, there were roughly the same new number of cases of cystic fibrosis and sickle cell anemia, but the difference in funding from volunteer organizations was staggering. For cystic fibrosis, these organizations raised $1.9 million, and for sickle cell, that number was 50000 Uh, 
do you want some current numbers or do you want me to tell you those later? Because tell me those later, but I'm, yeah, I'm sure that they're not any better at all. (laughs) Yep. Yep. But there was a lot of charitable work being done and awareness efforts that were made. So the Black Panther Party, among other groups, organized and created a massive network of healthcare centers across the country, where one of the goals was to raise sickle cell awareness and funding. Hmm. Dr. Charles Witten, for whom our drink is named, started the Sickle Cell Detection and Information Center in Detroit in 1971 and also helped found the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America, which has been instrumental not only in their educational efforts, but also in assisting families who have been impacted by sickle cell disease. And also he did a lot of work in terms of lowering barriers for people who are underrepresented in medicine to Uh, to be able to go to medical school and have that as an option. Federal funds also poured in as Nixon signed into law the Sickle Cell Anemia Control Act in 1972. And so this act included increased funds for research as well as health care for those impacted. It also required genetic screening to be voluntary rather than mandatory, which was had been a huge issue uh, previously because that just like paved the way for discrimination. Yeah. And it also included support for reproductive counseling. Mm. And during the 70s, our understanding of the disease itself became more nuanced as well. So first, new research about the possible origins of the allele showed that it likely emerged in four different mutational events between 70,000 and 150,000 years ago. Uh, three events that took place in Africa, and a fourth that took place in either Saudi Arabia or central India. This allele emerged in different places around the world. It's not just from one Mm. origin event. Secondly, there was the growing awareness of other hemoglobin disorders and the fact that sickle cell trait was found in non-Black people as well, which threw some complexity into the discussion in the 70s. -hmm. Uh, representation of sickle cell anemia in popular media also increased as characters with the disease were featured in a couple of movies or TV episodes, and magazines featured articles about the condition. Huh. But once again, here comes the other side of that double-edged sword. Yeah. The prominence of sickle cell anemia and political discussions of this time meant that some politicians felt as though they could use the disease to symbolize whatever they wanted to in order to drive their own narrative about race relations in the US. And sometimes it was used, sometimes that was used to bring about real positive change, but other times it was twisted to halt forward progress. Let's take genetic screening and reproductive counseling as an example. Okay. The push for genetic screening for sickle cell anemia and sickle cell trait came at a time when genetic screening in general had greatly increased. And when discussion of reproductive rights was at the forefront, especially issues of birth control and abortion, genetic screening to look for sickle cell trait or sickle cell anemia, although it was helpful in terms of getting people the medical attention that they may need, it often did an inadequate job of explaining what exactly the difference between sickle cell trait and sickle cell anemia was. Mm -hmm. And this inadequate explanation may have been unintentional or intentional at times, it appears. So people who had the trait, just one copy of the allele, were often openly discouraged from having children and urged to have abortions or undergo sterilization, procedures that were sometimes made free as an incentive. 
Yeah. And then the concept of mandatory screening for this and other genetic disorders was floated. And Linus Pauling, the Nobel Prize winner and whose name I mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. as being the scientist, yep, he suggested that everyone who had the sickle cell trait should have it tattooed on their forehead so that when they see another person with a tattoo, they can avoid falling in love and wanting to have children with them. What? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, And these acts, these discussions, of course, resulted in accusations of restricting black fertility, racial genocide, and new eugenics, and rightfully so. Yeah, this is what it sounds like to me. Oh, yeah. And this this misleading reproductive counseling for sickle cell was just one way that reproductive restrictions were intentionally or forcefully placed upon black people. Um, I really recommend Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts to read more about that topic. Mm -hmm. Um, And so before wrapping up with the history of sickle cell in the 1980s and 1990s, I want to read a quote by the author of Dying in the City of the Blues that I think does a really good job of summing up the 1970s and sickle cell perfectly. The story of sickle cell disease in the early 1970s also revealed the ways in which the political process both channeled and deflected the popular activism of the time. It was a time of grudging recognition of the Black experience, but it proved difficult to translate that awareness directly into health policy without creating enormous new stigmatizing burdens for Black Americans and without fostering growing cynicism about racial politics. hmm Yep. Yep. And so that brings us to the 1980s and 1990s. I don't want to step on your toes too much, Erin, about Mm. whatever you're going to talk about. So I'm just (laughs) going to go over a few big developments or patterns that emerged during this time with regard to sickle cell um, that I have a feeling you'll talk more about. Okay, let's see. Yeah. (laughs) So as as you mentioned, pain management is a huge component of sickle cell anemia. And the sympathy for people with with sickle cell that seemed characteristic of the 1960s and 1970s kind of gave way to this disturbing trend of cynicism and stigma. Yeah. More and more healthcare providers seem to simply not believe that people with sickle cell anemia were experiencing a true painful episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were increasing reports of healthcare providers accusing their sickle cell anemia patients of faking it, of exhibiting drug-seeking behavior, mm-hmm. and correspondingly limiting the pain medication prescribed. Mm-hmm. And um, earlier when you talked about the different timeline of when at different ages you experience you're more likely to experience one symptom over another mm-hmm. that the the increase in painful episodes in late adolescence and early adulthood is something that also like made this whole made this whole thing worse they were like oh well you're a young adult you're just seeking drugs so i'm not going to give you any oh my god and this is you know this is despite the fact that there was research indicating that this wasn't going on, that people with sickle cell anemia were just as worried about their own, you know, narcotic consumption or pain medication consumption as, as anyone else. And it was, it's just like, it didn't seem to make a difference. Yeah. It's like, it seemed to be like this, this belief that became so embraced and like so difficult to get rid of. It's so frustrating that in so many papers that you read, 
it's still something that is mentioned. Like, oh, you often have to use opioids to treat pain, which can lead to addiction. It's like, that's true in anyone. And there's no higher rates of opioid addiction in people with sickle cell anemia than in the general population. Like there just isn't. So it's, it, it's infuriating that you'd be like withholding treatment that is necessary. Ugh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, and there's also there was also something that was mentioned in this book about how there was research indicating that opioid addiction starting from hospital treatments or medical treatments is extraordinarily low. That is not the way that the vast majority of opioid addictions begin. And so, but despite all this, this enormous bias still remains. And this is, I mean, this is a a, a larger issue: yeah. the, the <laughs> invisibility of of pain in medicine. Mm-hmm. We can't measure it, mm-hmm. and I think that makes that makes people trust it less, trust the person less, and it sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about how like medicine became more about the body and measurements and these things that you could, you know, you could put on a chart than it became about the person's experience itself. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, but you know, in this context, what this meant this this increasing you know disbelief was that people with sickle cell anemia were at renewed risk for their pain, their experience to once again be neglected, ignored, and made invisible. Mm -hmm. And this persists today, this issue. Yeah. And these decades also brought the promise of many different therapies for sickle cell anemia, such as hydroxyurea, as you mentioned, and bone marrow transplantation, which didn't necessarily uphold the shiny promises that had been made about them in their first introduction. Um, But I'm really hopeful to hear more about (laughs) new approaches. Um, But I want to end now again with another quote, again from Keith Whelu, the author of Dying in the City of the Blues. For liberals, moderates, and conservatives alike, the history of neglect and the disease's chronic painful character seem to reflect white America's neglect and misunderstanding of black health concerns and demanded attention. The disease became a multi-purpose metaphor, a proxy in social, economic, and political debates about a wide range of seemingly unrelated issues. Okay, Erin, bring me up to speed on what's going on with sickle cell today. Okay, let's take a quick break first. All right. So we'll talk first about numbers, how many people are being affected by sickle cell in the U.S. and in the world today. And then we'll touch a little bit more on why that is and the malaria connection, because I do think that's a really interesting part of the story. Um, And then we'll talk about current research. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Okay. So We'll talk first about the U.S. and then globally. So in the U.S., newborn screening is conducted since 2006 or 2007 across the board in all states plus Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, So we know the rates of sickle cell allele in the population. So one copy, having one copy of sickle cell trait. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So overall in the U.S. in 2010, the incidence was 15 per 1,000 babies born. Trait. Trait. Okay. But this is a huge range from 73 per 1,000 among black newborns to 2 per 1,000 in Asian, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander newborns, 3 in white babies, and 7 per 1,000 in Hispanic newborns. And this is voluntary or mandatory screening? So newborn screening is generally... It's universal. Um, I think it is possible to opt out of it, um, but in general, it's universal and and kind of recommended. I think most of the time, they don't want to let you leave the hospital without newborn screening. Because um, it doesn't only screen for sickle cell. This screens for a whole bunch of different... We, we mm-hmm. talked about this in the cystic fibrosis episode as well. Right, right. Um, Because you're also identifying then those newborns with sickle cell anemia. But what's interesting is that it's actually hard to get a number on the number of babies in the U.S. born with sickle cell anemia, which I think is interesting. So let's talk about the whole globe. How many people are born every year with sickle cell anemia? Globally, estimates are about 300,000, just over 300,000 babies born every year with sickle cell anemia. That's a huge number. It's a massive number. And I want to point out that that number is the number of babies born with sickle cell HBSS. But remember that there are other ways that you can have sickle cell anemia, right? You could have it with one copy of HBS and one copy of beta thalassemia. You could have it with one copy of HBS and one copy of HBC. Those aren't included in that estimate of 300,000. So it's, okay. it's thought that that total number accounts for about 70% of the total amount of sickle cell disease, so that whole range of clinical disease, worldwide. And it's also estimated that about half of these babies worldwide are born in Nigeria, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and India. And that in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa, sickle cell anemia might be responsible for as much as 6% of all childhood mortality. 6%. Oh my God. Just from sickle cell anemia. Because in many places, in many parts of the world, under five mortality from sickle cell anemia, so dying before your fifth birthday, can be as high as 50 to 90%, which is atrocious. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that's because if babies aren't identified by newborn screening, then they don't receive penicillin prophylaxis or they don't receive adequate vaccinations, then it's very common that they will die from overwhelming infection before they turn five. Mm -hmm. So that's why newborn screening is so important and has been so helpful. Like it's only worth screening if you can do something about it, right? So we screen for things that we can prevent death if we identify them early. And so that's what we can do with newborn screening. Yeah. I think it's just been, it's like, I mean, and this is in general, newborn screening or any kind of genetic screening is such a touchy issue because it can so easily lead to, you know, who has that information and how can they use it against you? Absolutely. I mean, plus it gets into so many things of, so if you identify a newborn with a genetic trait, that had to come from either mom or dad, 
right? So now you know that either mom or dad has this. Maybe they didn't want to know that. Like there's a whole, the ethics mm-hmm. of all of that is wide ranging and more than we can talk about in this episode. But yes, yes. <laughs> but identifying babies with sickle cell anemia prevents them from dying. So in that way, it's extremely important and helpful. But despite the fact that this is a very common disease and and a very common trait among the population. Like you said, funding discrepancies remain, which is why to date we have only one disease-modifying treatment, that is hydroxyurea. So I want to talk, I want to give some more specific numbers. You mentioned them from, I think, the 60s and 70s. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about the last decade from 2008 to 2018, Good, I was hoping you would do this. Mm -hmm. This paper just came out in March of this year. Um, So we'll compare federal funding per person between cystic fibrosis, which we did an episode on, and sickle cell disease. So cystic fibrosis is another genetic disorder. It's also identified on newborn screens. It's also like the most common genetic disorder among white babies. So compared with cystic fibrosis per person with the disease... In the U.S., cystic fibrosis received $2,800 in federal funding compared to $800 for sickle cell. Wow. That's $2,000 more. It gets even worse if you look at charitable foundation expenditures. Cystic fibrosis, $7,600 per person with cystic fibrosis compared to $100. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. For sickle cell. Which, I mean, this directly leads to a discrepancy in the number of new drug approvals. In that same time period, four new drugs were approved for cystic fibrosis, one for sickle cell. I mean, it just it just trickles down and down and down. Like mm-hmm. you have the research money, you have treatment accessibility, you have new mm-hmm. treatments being developed, you have um, healthcare access to healthcare. Like all of these different components to it, yep. which is yeah. And so to put like a specific number two on the the difference in terms of overall prevalence of sickle cell versus cystic fibrosis in the U.S., this paper reported the U.S. birth rate of sickle cell disease is one in 365 black babies. For cystic fibrosis, it's one, it's very high. That's scary high. For cystic fibrosis, it's one in 2,500 white babies. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is also, you could say, very high. But one in 365 is a lot higher. <laughs> but yeah, when you when you put the numbers side by side, it is very, um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not surprising, but it is appalling that I know. there's such unequal support yeah. and funds. And so I think it, it kind of leads to a really important question about why is it that this is such a prevalent disease? Because a lot of times when we have genetic diseases that are, recessive, so you have to have two copies of that allele, in theory, evolutionarily, that that allele, that mutation should die out, right? If it's so bad that if you have two copies of it, you end up dying before the age of five, you're not going to be reproducing, so you're not going to be passing on that allele. So why is it at such high prevalence in the black population? Here's why, or at least what we think. It turns out that if you have one copy of this allele, it's very protective against dying from malaria. It's very protective against infection, severe infection with Plasmodium falciparum malaria. Mm -hmm. 
So in regions where Plasmodium falciparum malaria, so that one species of malaria is very, very prevalent, the prevalence of this specific mutation is also very prevalent. What I think is so interesting is like, this has been kind of an epidemiological, we've shown this epidemiologically in so many, many studies, just how massive the protection is, but there's still not a clear molecular answer as to how one copy of this allele protects you against dying from malaria. Overall, it seems like if you have some of that HBS beta hemoglobin, then your cells can eventually sickle, and then those cells that are infected with plasmodium, the plasmodium doesn't replicate. So essentially malaria can't grow as well in those cells for like a number of different reasons that we still don't fully understand. Right. But it's it's only in the cells that have sickled. Yeah. And so it turns out that infected cells tend to sequester in certain organs that have low oxygen concentration. Right. So, so like then those cells or something. Yeah, yeah, spleen and liver. So then those yep. cells end up sickling because yep. of that. So whereas okay. normally if you just have one copy, your cells wouldn't sickle very often, but these infected cells get sequestered under low oxygen concentration and then end up sickling and then the plasmodium can't replicate. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So I'll post a paper, one of the more recent papers I found, um, going into more detail on that if you're interested. Um, But yeah, so then I guess the question is, where do we go from here? And even though we only get, get, what, 100 or 800 research dollars per 2800 for cystic fibrosis, is there research going on about more treatments? And the answer is yes. There's actually some pretty exciting in terms of technology treatments on the horizon. So we have a very special guest on today to talk about the wonderful world of genome editing and specifically CRISPR as it relates to treatment options for sickle cell disease and other genetic disorders. So let me introduce Dr. Megan Hochstrasser, the Education Programs Manager at Innovative Genomics Institute in Berkeley, who is here to tell us in much greater detail than I ever could what CRISPR is, a little bit about genome editing and what that even means, how we can use it for diseases like sickle cell, what some of the drawbacks might be, and how far away we are from technology like this being in everyone's life. Excellent. My name is Megan Hochstrasser, and I work for the Innovative Genomics Institute, or IGI, at UC Berkeley. I am the education program manager, so I basically try to talk to people about all of the research that our institute does and the science behind it and help them understand what it means and what it's all about. So the IGI, or the Innovative Genomics Institute, is a partnership between UC Berkeley and UC San Francisco. So we're a nonprofit research group doing academic research, trying to use genetic engineering tools like CRISPR to solve big world problems. So we work in biomedicine and human health. Uh, We work in sustainable agriculture. And we we basically try to improve CRISPR-based and other technologies that are used to manipulate DNA in different ways, improve the tools, and then apply them to solve different problems. 
Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> Good. <laughs> oh, that is so cool. Well, so could you start off just by telling us what exactly CRISPR is? I think that people have heard that term, but a lot of us don't know what it means. Sure. I mean, I, I got my PhD study in CRISPR and I still am behind the times and understanding every little bit about it. it it's really complicated. <laughs> um, and actually there's new CRISPR tools and CRISPR news like every other day. So it's hard to keep up with, but at the core, CRISPR in the most basic terms is a way of changing DNA. So it's a tool that scientists can use to make targeted, precise changes in the sequence of DNA that's in a living cell or organism. So this is really impactful because previously we were kind of limited to, you know, making synthetic DNA in a tube or something in the lab and kind of adding that to a cell or breeding two plants together to try to change the DNA in the the plant, the progeny plant, the child plant. But now we can take something that is alive, like a human being, make changes in their cells to change the DNA sequence, and they will continue to be alive. So that's a really amazing advancement, actually. So genome editing is actually the, the bigger category. So CRISPR is one type of genome editing tool. That is so, it's like, I feel like I'm living in the future. It is. (laughs) It's incredible. So specifically, you know, this in this episode, we're focusing on sickle cell disease. And recently in the news, there was, you know, stories about using genome editing to treat sickle cell disease. And could you maybe walk us through how that is done? Like what in in the case of sickle cell, how CRISPR was used to, uh, to treat the disease? Sure. Yeah, so it's been a really exciting time to be in the CRISPR field because I was there kind of before it was used as a genome editing tool, and I was just interested in what it's normally doing, which I don't have to get into because it's a long story, but CRISPR actually comes from bacteria, and it's just this system that bacteria use to fend off viruses that infect them, which sounds so obscure and not interesting, but we were able to take this tool from bacteria and kind of steal it and use it for our own purposes. So I've been watching the development of this field since the very beginning. And it's been amazing, actually, to see when patients like the, the person who's been covered um, in NPR who has sickle cell talking about how they have been essentially cured. It's, I mean, fingers crossed. It seems like she's really been cured of the disease. So it, it's been incredible to watch from the beginning. So it's very exciting. Um, I guess I would say... There are two general approaches to using CRISPR to treat sickle cell disease. Um, and they're, they're really different in a conceptual way. So the most straightforward way you can imagine to fix a genetic disease would be to go in and change whatever the mutated letter is in the DNA to the correct letter, right? And that's what our institute is trying to do for sickle cell disease. That's our approach. It's kind of conceptually straightforward and understandable. The approach being used to treat the patients who are now in the news being treated for sickle cell disease with CRISPR is a little bit different. So instead of trying to fix the mutation in the hemoglobin gene that is causing their disease, instead, those clinicians are editing cells to start producing something called fetal hemoglobin. So instead of fixing the broken hemoglobin, they actually turn back on this other hemoglobin that all of our cells have the instructions to make but is turned off. And that hemoglobin can compensate for the damaged one. That is so amazing. It's so incredible. Wow. And is this like a treatment like CRISPR? Does it fall under the category of treatment or cure? 
Right. So in theory, CRISPR could be a one-time fix for something like sickle cell disease. I think we're not going to know how long things like this last until we actually try them in a person because we can test something in a mouse, but mice live for a couple of years and then you don't know, right? So I think it remains to be seen how long lasting the effects are. And it also remains to be seen whether or not there are side effects that will pop up later that we haven't been able to detect early on. But so far, it seems like things are going well. Again, this is only like two patients for which there are data, but I think it's really promising. And that's what's exciting about genome editing in general to me is that you could do a one-time treatment because you're not treating the symptoms of a disease. You're not doing some kind of uh, lateral approach to kind of helping the person, but not actually fixing the underlying cause. With genome editing, we can, in theory, correct the underlying mutations. We can change someone's DNA in their cells and keep them from having any kind of symptoms, basically wiping out whatever the disease is. So it's, it's super promising. Um, I think one thing to note is that for some conditions, you've already done damage, like just living with some of the genetic diseases that are out there, like sickle cell, causes a lot of damage to your tissues. And there are things that you can't change once they've already happened, they're irreversible. But in theory, with sickle cell, you could stop future crises, like pain crises, where the cells pile up and get stuck in a cell and cause really horrible pain and more damage. So you could kind of halt the progression of the disease permanently. But that still remains to be tested. So I guess that kind of leads into our next question, which is how close are we to this being something that, you know, is more commonly used beyond just a couple of patients? I think we're farther away than I would want to be. So I think it's going to be a slow process. And this is something I have to deal with all the time when I'm talking to people I know who have various diseases or I'm giving public talks is that everyone wants their disease to be cured today or yesterday. And it's just a very, very slow process. So sickle cell is one of the most mechanically treatable diseases. So there's just details about the way it works that make it treatable using genetic engineering or genome editing. And there are a couple of other conditions that are also possible to do with our current technologies. And so they're coming first. But there are thousands of genetic diseases out there, and all of those deserve to have some sort of treatment. So I think it's going to be probably a couple decades before we start having really common treatments using genome editing. Um, right now we have, I guess, maybe three or four genetic diseases are in clinical trials using CRISPR. And the clinical trial process takes years. Um, but I think I would be shocked if you had told me when I was in graduate school that just you know, six years later, basically, someone would be cured of a disease using CRISPR. I would be stunned. I wouldn't have thought that was possible. So I think it, it is moving very fast in scientific terms, but it can be kind of slow in human terms. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess speaking of clinical trials and, you know, why there might be potential for this to take a little bit longer than, than other traditional treatments, are there or have there been observed any downsides to CRISPR, either in the technology itself, whether it's like expensive or in sort of like the, you know, side effect kind of way? Yes, for sure. So I think as fast as we can move scientifically, we're still a long way from figuring out a societal level solution to rolling out CRISPR-based therapies. There, there's a big gap between a scientific solution to a disease and a societal solution. 
because we can make the greatest scientific tool we can come up with that works really efficiently and it's accurate and there's no side effects. But if we can't make that affordable or accessible to people, it's not going to have any impact. So the, the cost in particular of genetic therapies is a huge issue. And it's something we talk about all the time at our institute and are trying to strategize and come up with ways to get around this. But it's enormously expensive. So there are there's a similar technology called gene therapy that is a little bit different from CRISPR. You could kind of call CRISPR a gene therapy. But at its base, a gene therapy is using a virus to add in a gene. So instead of making a precise change in DNA like CRISPR, you're just throwing a gene in somewhere into the genome that will be helpful. And actually, you can. there is a gene therapy for sickle cell disease. You could throw in a copy, a healthy copy of the beta globin or hemoglobin gene to help people, and that's under development. But gene therapies are kind of an emerging approach to genetic disease that have only recently started being approved by the FDA. So they've been in development for a couple decades now and are finally starting to reach patients or real real people, but their price tags have been whopping. So they've been a couple hundred thousand dollars to millions of dollars per treatment, which is more money than I have. Um, <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> and I think on the one hand, we talked about how these approaches, since they're fixing the underlying cause of a disease, could be a single treatment. So if you compare the lifetime cost of treating something like uh, sickle cell disease or beta thalassemia or these other blood disorders, that's going to be a lot of money. And then in theory, perhaps paying half a million dollars once is actually going to be cheaper um, than the long-term cost. But if you can't afford that up front, it's, it's a moot point. And I think right now we're kind of trying to figure out if this is something that's going to be covered by insurance companies. Um, I, I think it's an, an issue in America um, that is kind of broader than the science, but we've been trying to think if there are scientific solutions. So hopefully someone will figure out some social solutions to healthcare. Um, but in the meantime, we're, we're trying to figure out if there are ways that we can change the way we do the science that will actually change the outcome um, when, it, when things are priced eventually. So that's, that's one thing that we're working on um, that I'm kind of hopeful about. One of the big issues with sickle cell disease that's going to make this so expensive is that we're doing all of this gene editing I'm talking about in patient cells that we've taken out of a patient. So we're not putting a shot in someone's arm or giving them a pill. We're taking their cells, extracting cells from their bone marrow, editing them in the lab, and then putting them back into the patient's body. And that's really complicated and expensive. It requires people with a lot of expertise to handle the cells, and it's, it just jacks up the price by a lot. And there's also this requirement in a lot of these cases for using a virus to deliver the, the CRISPR tools. And manufacturing this virus is really expensive and difficult as well. So there are a lot of steps and compounding steps potentially that add cost. So we've been trying to think, are there ways to do this in vivo? So instead of having to take cells out and put them back, can we just do the fix directly in a patient's body? So I think there are potential scientific solutions to some of these problems, but they're really, really hard problems, um, and they'll take a lot of investment. You said you've talked in this episode about kind of historic marginalization of people with sickle cell and the way there's, you know, racism in medicine manifests in this disease. I think one of the promising things that's been happening lately is, one, this kind of reckoning amongst 
the white scientific community and, and others about how black communities have been affected by the, the practice of science and government funding and medicine and all of that. And two, um, we were recently told that the NIH and Gates Foundation are now investing $100 million towards doing in vivo therapies or potentially other therapies, but particularly in vivo therapies using genome editing for sickle cell. So that, that's a huge investment of money that I, I think could make a really big difference in how we're able to treat this disease and actually making it an affordable treatment for people. What an awesome interview. Thanks again so much, Megan, for taking the time to chat CRISPR and genome editing with us. We loved it. And Erin, we should definitely do an entire episode on CRISPR someday. Oh, yeah. All right. Should we do sources? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So for my sources, I read a few books. One is called Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination by Alondra Nelson. Um, also, as I mentioned earlier, Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts and Dying in the City of the Blues by Keith Waylou. Um, And also, I have a few other books and papers that I will link to. A couple papers I want to shout out are by Steensma et al., Walter Clement Knoll, First Patient Described with Sickle Cell Disease, and by Barash in 1998, Sickle Cell Trait Policy and Research Paradigms. Awesome. I read a few good book chapters that I will link to, as well as there is a great sickle cell disease uh, in Nature Review Disease Primers. Um, That was from 2018, if you want just kind of a nice overview of the biology of sickle cell disease. And then if you want that paper on the comparison of funding between sickle cell and cystic fibrosis was by Fahim Farak et al., published in JAMA Uh, in 2020, just earlier this year. We post all of these sources, as well as the sources from every one of our episodes on our website, thispodcastwillkillyou.com. Just click on the episodes tab. Well, thank you again so much to the amazing Marsha and Cherie for sharing their experiences with us, and also to Megan for walking us through the incredibly cool world of CRISPR technology. Yeah, thank you all so much. And thank you to Bloodmobile for providing the music for this episode and all of our episodes. And thank you to you, listeners, for listening. We love you. We appreciate you. We hope you like this episode. Yeah, it was really fun. So we hope you had fun too. <laughs> Until next time, wash your hands. You filthy animals.